When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1, since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Warm greetings from Northwest Germany. Welcome to my show. My name is Dong Wang, and I'm the host. Today, it's my pleasure to have Dr. Marco Weiss with us to speak about his new book entitled Post-Colonial Security, Britain, France, and West Africa's Cold War, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. Marco, I wonder if you'd begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself. Yes, Dong, uh, thank you very much, first of all, uh, for having me here and to the network actually being interested in my book. Uh, so yeah, happy to say a few words about uh, where I'm actually coming from. So I was from town in Switzerland, bilingual town. So first went to German speaking school and then later completed my courses at the French speaking school in Neuchâtel. I then went on to study uh, history, philosophy, and journalism at the University of Neuchâtel, international history at the Graduate Institute of International Development Studies in Geneva, and then uh, did a double PhD at the universities of Nottingham and Neuchâtel. Now, how did I become interested in writing this book? Um, well, it took a bit of a detour, a rather long one, to get there. So initially, I was interested in the Second World War, but then for my PhD, moved into Cold War history. But there, the focus was on Europe and neutrality and not Africa's Cold War. But it was then during my postdoc years that I sort of embarked on a two-track journey that would eventually lead me to the Cold War in West Africa. On the one hand, I took my research on neutrality from Europe and sort of went global with it and sort of became more interested in neutrality and its uh, third world pendant, non-alignment in the global Cold War. And on the other hand, uh, while I was working for the Center for Security Studies at ETH Zurich, I began to take an interest in peacekeeping and France's security role in Africa. And this actually took me uh, to Cote d'Ivoire in West Africa in particular. 
Now, I was aware of France's extensive military role and footprint in sub-Saharan Africa, but it was actually when for my work and security studies, I ended up visiting the French military base in Bourguet next uh, to Abidjan, uh, the Ivorian capital, to interview French officers, when I actually fully realized France's military might in Africa, and also particularly its rather nonchalant attitude towards what was supposed to be a post-colonial, not a neo-colonial African security uh, architecture. So I wanted to know why and how France actually uh, retained and managed to retain such a you know, security role in Africa despite decolonization. And this question seemed to me of particular relevance because the other major former colonial power in Africa, that is Britain, had almost completely withdrawn from Africa by the end of the Cold War. And such interventions as the one in uh, Sierra Leone a couple of decades ago was uh, the exception confirming the rule. Now, confronted with this divergence, I sort of decided not only to adopt a comparative perspective, but particularly return to the past to study the making of post-colonial security relationships during the transfer of power and the early years of independence. So I'm happy to say a few more words how I came about to write post-colonial security and how to approach it when I will talk later on in the second part about the book itself. Thank you, Marco. It sounds fascinating. What main messages do you intend to convey to readers? So perhaps before I come to the uh, the specific messages, which I will focus on in a second, I would start perhaps a few more words how I ended up, uh, you know, properly approaching uh, this topic. I think it's important that I perhaps say a few words on which countries in particular I focused once I sort of transformed this initial thought into a fully fledged research project. In so doing, I intended to focus on uh, the two West African heavyweights, um, Nigeria and Cote d'Ivoire, because these two countries, they were in the sub-region of Africa where not only the decolonization wave took shape, but also um, where actually the Cold War somehow made its debut uh, south of the Sahara. So also these two countries, and I think that's why they're very pertinent when you compare uh, Britain's and France's post-colonial security roles in Africa during the Cold War, uh, or at the height of the early African Cold War, what I considered it to be, um, is also that there were uh, moderate countries, so they were Western-oriented and not Eastern-oriented. And I'll say a bit more why also this is relevant from a historiographical perspective. So now having this out of the way on which countries I particularly focused, it might make a bit more sense to say now what are my key messages that I'd like to convey to the readers. So first of all, I argue that And that's important that the post-colonial security relationships that we have today were largely already determined during the transfer of power and the first years of independence. Another point which is important is that Britain and France, they of course had relatively similar strategies, namely that they wanted to maintain a formal 
security influence in their former colonies, especially Cote d'Ivoire and Nigeria, but they had different grand strategies. So Britain chose to fight the global Cold War with the United States eventually and approach the African former colonies through that lens. France, by contrast, pursued a neo-colonial policy in Africa, uh, which was in pursuit of its so-called policy of greatness, policy of grandeur. Now, a key uh, argument in the book is, of course, that in actually then how this uh, post-colonial security relationship was negotiated uh, was the role of the African elites in determining the post-colonial security relationships. But these had to respond to local, sub-regional and regional, as well as, of course, uh, uh, the international factors. But I argue, and I think this is a key message in the book, is that it was ultimately the local uh, domestic factors that were key in causing the divergence in the post-colonial security relationships of Britain and Nigeria on the one hand, and France and Cote d'Ivoire on the other. And I think this is uh, very important because this really gave different characteristics because notably uh, on that was caused by the different uh, domestic uh, systems. Because what is important is that the Nigerian and Ivorian governments, they were as such in their outlook rather similar. Uh, they were both anti-communists, they did not want the Soviets or the communist Chinese anywhere near, if possible, if they could avoid it, and they were Western-oriented. However, there, the domestic factors, notably having a degree of democracy in Nigeria, despite the corruption, led the Nigerians to turn to Western powers such as the United States and, uh, of course, also West Germany, as I show in the book, but in Cote d'Ivoire, there was no domestic opposition. So, or if there was, it was annihilated by Oufoubouani, the president of Cote d'Ivoire. And so he mainly used, perhaps, to some extent, uh, the French fears of United States encroachment on its sphere of influence to get from the French what it wanted. Whereas Nigeria, in pursuit of what I show in the book to be a Western version of neutralism or non-alignment, tried to reduce in anti-colonial manner its reliance on the British for security and defence. And of course, this was not what its leader, Sir Abu Bakar Tafawa had necessarily in mind, but he was forced to do so by domestic factors hence the divergence uh, between the two post-colonial security relationships under study. Marco, given West Africa's importance during the Cold War, quite some people have written about Nigeria, Cote d'Ivoire, and their relations with Britain, France, the United States, West Germany, India, Canada, the People's Republic of China, Israel, etc., but you revealed quite a rich, multi-layered, and often messy world of post-colonial security and intervention in that part of the world. 
Could you tell the audience a bit more about the theories and approaches in security studies and diplomatic history you employed to execute the writing? Well, thank you very much for kind of words in relation to my uh, efforts and approach. Now, please allow me to make a few comments in relation to uh, the historiography that you referred to. Now, there has been uh, a certain amount of historical literature on West Africa in the Cold War, uh, not least because, of course, it was in West Africa uh, that the Soviet Union made its first incursions into sub-Saharan Africa, notably in Guinea and Ghana. However, I think overall the literature on what I consider Africa's early Cold War in West Africa uh, remains rather patchy. And I think there are three reasons why the historiography remains rather patchy. Firstly, um, and of course, these reasons have to do with the spectacular to some extent. Firstly, Cold War historians have extensively focused uh, on the 1970s and early 1980s that were more, far more brutal and militarized and saw more you know, militarized involvement, especially of the two superpowers and uh, their allies. Secondly, the literature on Africa's early Cold War, if you look at the late 50s and early 60s, this particular period focused very much on the Congo crisis, which again seemed to be more spectacular than uh, what I'm studying uh, or, for instance, others have in relation to development aid and so on. Now, thirdly, and I think this is a key argument, and that tends to be forgotten when one thinks about the Cold War, is that West Africa's Cold War was actually relatively peaceful, but that does not mean that it's not worthwhile studying because it is intriguing to see how different external Cold War non-aligning Commonwealth actors such as West Germany, India, Canada, and the People's Republic of China actually tried to position themselves in order to gain influence in post-colonial Africa. So I think there is much that remains to be written about West Africa's Cold War, and especially even more so if one wants to bring in uh, the African uh, perspective. And I think this is something that uh, brings me now to your actual question and is, of course, something key in my book. So from past research in peacekeeping and France's military role in Africa, I was aware that African elites uh, are or were and are key in the post-colonial security relationship. This is something I notably realized when I spoke to Ivorian, the high-ranking Ivorian officers during my field research. So when I, with this in mind, uh, sort of this African agency or African role in fostering or developing or designing, uh, whether consciously or not, these post-colonial security relationships, I searched for a theoretical approach to bring in the African perspective. And that's when I stumbled across post-colonial studies, because, as you know, post-colonial studies, the aim is to shift the analytical focus away from the metropoles to the former colonies. And it seemed pertinent because also the postulate of post-colonial studies had to some extent increasingly made it into imperial history, security studies, and perhaps to a lesser extent, uh, into international and Cold War histories. All these different literatures, of course, have, uh, you know, fed into my book. However, there are 
some downsides or seem to me to be downsides to post-colonial studies. So firstly, uh, by adopting an almost exclusively subaltern approach or perspective, it sort of ran the risk of removing a key part of the equation, namely that of the external powers. Secondly, post-colonial studies seem to have a tendency to avoid high politics and especially, even more so, military affairs. And thirdly, and probably most importantly, was that seeming lack of empirical rigor of post-colonial studies. And this lack of empirical rigor or empirics more generally is something that has been pointed out uh, by Africanist Frederick Cooper and Jean-Francois Bayard. Besides, I also used their works, notably Cooper's concept of the gatekeeper state and Bayard's theory of extraversion. So I just chose to use post-colonial studies to inform my project, but at the same time make use of both classic and new international history approaches. This entailed taking into consideration so not only the global and the regional, but also local factors, and most importantly, of course, to carry out multi-archival research in archives in Africa, Europe, and the United States. Extensive international archival research seemed essential, and still seems essential to me, to get an as balanced picture as possible. Thank you, Marco. Speaking of empirical primary sources, you've done a great deal of uh, original research on archival sources, a strength of your book. I wonder if you can explain to readers and listeners more how you made a conscious effort to address the imbalance between Western and African sources to bring out more African voices. What do you mean by African agency? How would you defend classical diplomatic history that has been criticized for its overemphasis on power holders and high politics? Thank you. So perhaps it's best if I start actually by addressing how I came to be confronted with an archival imbalance or what I understand by it. So as I mentioned earlier, I made a conscious effort to shift analytical perspective from the north to the south to reach an analytical middle ground and, of course, gain insights into the African perspective. So for this, I made a conscious effort to consult archives in Africa. So. In addition to going through the relevant records in American, British, French, and German archives, I also visited archives in Cote d'Ivoire, Ghana, and Nigeria. Now, as most people who have carried out archival research in Africa know, there are, and this is, of course, there are a few notable exceptions, such as the archives in Ghana, for instance, there are not that many documents to be found, sadly. And this, even more so, applies to the realm of foreign and defense policy, because in many countries, there is no archival policy that actually allows for documents to make it from the ministries and departments to the archives. 
Now, in Western archives, by contrast, a researcher can easily be overwhelmed by the sheer abundance of documents. And this led to this archival imbalance between the abundance of Western sources and, of course, the rather scarcity of uh, African sources. Now, this, of course, at first sight, made it rather difficult or a daunting task to actually provide the African perspective and show African agency in the making of the post-colonial security relationship. And this is what I call to some extent the post-colonial paradox, because if on the one hand, the aim is to actually, of post-colonial studies or, you know, the post-colonial posture to actually provide the African perspective. Well, on the other hand, there is a problem of sources. There are, of course, some ways to circumvent it. However, one might say that I took a rather traditional way of addressing uh, these problems. Because in my view, there's no reason to despair because of this uh, imbalance of sources. Not much one can do about it as such. Because I think a diligent, critical, and simultaneous use of Western sources allows to gain important insights into the African perspective and notably detect African agency. A careful reading of the vast body of Western sources and actually an awareness that they might be incomplete and actually there might be a biased discourse of policymakers in London, Paris, Washington, etc. It allows us a substantial degree of Nigerian and Ivorian agency. Also, the vast corpora of Western sources, of course, allows us also to uh, adopt a comparative approach. So in my view, the key to understanding the African perspective is a conscious effort to avoid Eurocentrism. And I think also it is key to note that in light of the distance of events, it's of course difficult, at least in the case of my book, to compensate uh, for the lack or the scarcity of African sources through oral history. And also, if one says to avoid, or would recommend to avoid the Western sources, well, that would have been self-defeating in my view, because it is very much in these Western sources that one can detect African agency. Admittedly, it's difficult and frequently impossible to retrace the decision-making process and motivations of African policymakers. However, well contextualized, nevertheless, it can, the motivations can to some extent be assessed. Of course, also, what has to be said that my source base inevitably privileged uh, the agency by, of the African elite. However, this agency, and that's, I think, something I show in the book, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. Inasmuch as it engages with and responds to external factors, so for instance, the former colonial and the Cold War powers and imaginations, I also show in the book that it responds to regional, sub-regional, and especially domestic factors. And it was the very different domestic situations and political situations in Nigeria and Cote d'Ivoire that ultimately led to these diverging security relationships with the former metropole. So even though I would consider myself more of an international than a diplomatic historian, in defense of diplomatic history, I'd like to say firstly that I hope that my book shows that this kind of history has come a long way. 
and it can be informed by such critical approaches as post-colonial studies while still being methodologically rigorous. Also to focus on the elites or power holders in high politics, well, whether those critical of diplomatic and international history like it or not, it is ultimately they who took the decisions that affected the security and well-being of the people. Thank you, Marco. In chapters one to four, you focused on the Anglo-Nigerian defense agreement, the Franco-Ivorian cooperation agreements, the significant relinquishment of British colonialism in Nigeria, and the strengthening of Franco-Ivorian collaboration roughly from the late 1950s to the 1960s. How did the character of the individual leaders such as Abu Bakr, Tifawa, Bilawa, Felix Witt, uh, Boini, Harold uh, Macmillan, and Charles de Gaulle in these former colonies and metropoles shape the divergent contours of national independence security, military, and economic ties among themselves. I think it's, yeah, it's really interesting to uh, focus on the, the individual leaders and how their, I mean, their role and how their characters, uh, you know, affected, of course, the post-colonial security relationship between the former metropole and former colony. Now, I argue in my book, of course, I put a heavy emphasis on the role of the Ivorian and Nigerian leaders. Um, so let me first I try briefly, you know, present perhaps Macmillan and de Gaulle before turning uh, to uh, their African counterparts. Now, the difference in the leadership uh, was, of course, not only caused in the difference in character, but I would say more importantly so by the rather different or different political systems they operated in. Now, de Gaulle operated on the pretty much a political system that he created for himself, well, the constitution of the Fifth Republic. It was not only tailored towards himself, uh, for himself, but also gave him almost monarchical power. Now, Macmillan and his successors, Alec Douglas Home and Harold Wilson, they, by contrast, they, well, they had to work with their cabinet. They couldn't just dictate uh, to their ministers. And most importantly, they were also accountable to Parliament in Westminster. Another factor in the diverging positions and policies of the British and the French were, of course, the ways in which they responded to the debacle of uh, the Suez crisis. Following Suez, Macmillan, he aimed for interdependence with the United States, together with the United States first fighting the Cold War in Europe, and then increasingly also uh, and on a global scale, uh, the global Cold War. Inevitably, Britain, you know, it was not an interdependence of equals, it was rather Britain increasingly becoming the junior partner. Now, de Gaulle, by contrast, he aimed for an independent French role in the world and pursued what I already mentioned, a policy of grandeur, which was epitomized by the force de frappe, so French nuclear bomb or deterrent. They also had different understandings and visions for Africa. Now, France, 
um, had already earlier on and to a much heavier, uh, much more substantial extent, relied on Africa for its empire, whether it was soldiers or strategic depth from the First World War on, and then especially in the Second World War. Now, Britain, you know, in British uh, imperial thinking, uh, Africa was always of sort of a secondary rank, and it was only in the Second World War that it gains some prominence, and that would only last into the very immediate aftermath of the Second World War. Now, when de Gaulle returned to power in 1958, unlike in the British case, for the French, or for him, the colonies were absolutely key in pursuit of his policy of grandeur. In Macmillan's case, Africa had gained some increased strategic importance following British setbacks in the Middle East, not only Suez, but also the Iraqi revolution in 1958. But it had importance, Africa, but not necessarily in itself, but rather actually from a Cold War perspective. So Cold War considerations increasingly convinced London that it had to let go of its African colonies if necessary even relinquish informal control. Now, Paris, by contrast, was absolutely adamant to keep its colonies within its orbit or at least guarantee its sphere of influence. Nevertheless, both Macmillan and de Gaulle, they wanted actually to formally retain their security roles in Nigeria and Cote d'Ivoire, respectively, despite independence. And in so doing, the policies, and I think this is important, of course, they were not the only uh, key players from a British and French perspective, they uh, were influenced and assisted by such important figures as Duncan Sandys in the British case, who was uh, first defence and then later uh, Commonwealth Secretary. And in the French case, uh, very importantly, of course, uh, Jacques Focard. Uh, de Gaulle's Monsieur L'Afrique, uh, really uh, the man who uh, helped de Gaulle extensively shape uh, France's role in Africa since independence. Ultimately, and that's an argument I make quite strong in the book, their ability, however, to shape the post-colonial security relationships heavily relied on their Nigerian and Ivorian counterparts, Félix Oufeboigny in Côte d'Ivoire, and Sir Abu Bakar Tafaba Baleva in Nigeria. Now, as such, the Nigerian and Ivorian leaders, they were quite similar, you know, from a distance. Both were conservative and capitalist. Both were strongly anti-communist. They also shared an aversion to its pan-Africanism. So that means they were not in favor of African integration. They only favored African economic cooperation. They both were Anglophile and Francophile, respectively, and both they wanted to remain close to their former colonial power. There were, however, also differences in the way they were connected to their metro, former metropole. Félix Oufeboigny, since the nine, early 1950s, had been very much part of the French political system. He had served as a minister in a number of governments of the Fourth French Republic. Baleva, he had indeed, uh, to some extent, been groomed by the British in the run-up to independence and was also a leading politician of the northern region, which was, had always been 
close to Britain and on which Britain had relied upon to rule Nigeria, uh, this indirect rule, a famous indirect rule. However, what has to be emphasized is that Balewa was also the person who was chosen to be prime minister to lead Nigeria into independence. Now, Felix Oufebouani in Cote d'Ivoire, he never actually initially did not want his country to become independent. He lobbied in favor, extensively in favor of the French community, which was de Gaulle's project to salvage the French empire in 1958. So when de Gaulle eventually in early 19, or late 1959 gave in to African demands for independence, Felix Oufebouani, he was disappointed if not even outright angry with the Gaulle. And it was a, as a result of this disappointment and to show his African leadership credentials that Oufoubouani then drove a very hard bargain with the French during the negotiations for the post-colonial security relationship. The Nigerian leadership too became more assertive in the run-up and especially following independence. But it was not really caused by Valera, but rather by some in his government, so notably his coalition partners from the Eastern-dominated party, the NCNC, and more importantly, of course, the opposition, which was fueled by protests in the street. External criticism by such voices as Ghana's Kwame Nkrumah, who accused, of course, Nigeria of a new colonial collusion. Well, he accused also Cote d'Ivoire, but because of the difference in political system, it had more of an effect in Nigeria than it had in Cote d'Ivoire, because it, were these, uh, it was these different political systems and domestic situations of Nigeria and Cote d'Ivoire that heavily influenced the post-colonial security relationship and the relationship more broadly. In corrupt yet democratic Nigeria, Baleba's government tried to calm dissenting voices by pursuing a policy of non-alignment and in order to do so, reduce the reliance on Britain. And this first led to the abrogation of the Anglo-Nigerian Defense Agreement and then an increasing reliance on other powers for military assistance. In Cote d'Ivoire, by contrast, Félix Oufoubouani enjoyed an unrivaled moral, tribal and political authority which he secured and reinforced through the establishment of a de facto one-party state and increasingly authoritarian rule. And it was in this very endeavor that he relied on and colluded with France. He was increasingly paranoid of any potentially dissenting voices, which he most likely falsely accused of plotting against him. And he carried out extensive purges notably with French assistance, and this left him pretty much unchallenged in Cote d'Ivoire. So, whereas Oufoubouani relied for the security of his country, regime, and himself on the French, Baleva, he and his government tried, though half-heartedly, to phase out British influence, especially in the security sector. Indeed, different political systems produced different uh, post-colonial security relations. In chapters five to eight, you presented some competitors or new kids on the block, so to speak, in the Western African power play landscape, including the United States, the Soviet Union, 
West Germany, the PRC, and Czechoslovakia, how did the domestic, local, regional, and international factors contribute to the expanded influences of West African agency when they chose the different suppliers of economic and military aid? What were the dynamics among the multitude of African agencies? What was the institutional legacy of post-colonial security in Africa's Cold War? Thank you. Yeah, I think I already, to some extent, um, addressed, of course, the question of the domestic, uh, i.e. local level, but I'll try now to expand a bit on it and also to address uh, the question specifically in relation to the alternative supplies of economic and military assistance, and in so doing also address the regional and international dimensions. So perhaps let's start look at the sort of uh, macro international level and take it on from there. Now, this uh, predominantly, if not exclusively, a Cold War dimension was, of course, important, but it was not the only important one. Now, the Soviet Union's Third World Offensive arrival in, and arrival in West Africa was alarming, of course, to the United States. Now, the Eisenhower administration began to take a closer interest in Africa as a result of it. There were very hesitant closer interest, and it was on the Kennedy then that Washington developed a full-blown aid policy and started investing large sums in Africa. Yet it's important to note, I think, that the United States was very reluctant to provide military assistance uh, to African countries because it wanted to prevent the Cold War from turning hotter. And uh, it was only willing to step in when the West influence seemed at risk. And let's not forget, um, in the 60s, the United States was getting more and more into trouble in, uh, in Vietnam. Now, the Soviets, they, they have no such qualms, you know, from turning the Cold War in Africa hotter, and they didn't have, you know, any democratic accountability. So they were happy to provide military in addition to economic assistance. And in these efforts, it was often, uh, or these efforts were often complemented, if not spearheaded, by Czechoslovakia, which also pursued its uh, not only communist, but of course, also national interests and also economic interests. So when it came to military assistance, the Nigerian and Ivorian leaders, they had suddenly the choice between East and West, like Arsene had many of their African uh, fellows. Now, theoretically, this, of course, gave them an important leverage when negotiating the post-colonial relationship with London and Paris, respectively. Now, it's important to emphasize here, and that's a point I make repetitively in the book, is that neither Beleva nor Ufebwani ever considered turning east for military assistance. Yet the specter that they might do so was a concern for Western policymaker. And this was notably the case in Nigeria, where opposition forces called for turning eastwards or at least rebalancing the Nigerian position in line with its proclaimed foreign policy of non-alignment. So as a result, that leading non-aligned country, India, could be appealing for helping Nigeria develop its armed forces. Yet the real competition between military assistance played out within 
the Western Bloc. Now, confronted with critical voices from within their governments, the opposition and the streets who wanted to reduce the reliance on the former colonial power, as well as criticism from such so-called radical countries like Kwame and Krumah's Ghana, they could also turn to alternative suppliers from within the West or allies of the Western Bloc. And it was there then when West Germany in the Nigerian case and Israel in the Ivorian case came into the picture. They were actually happy to offer their assistance because, and that's important to emphasize, they were not motivated by the core global Cold War as such, but rather their own conflicts. In the German case, that was the parallel German-German Cold War. And in the Israeli case, it was, of course, the Arab-Israeli conflict. Both West Germany and Israel wanted to gain friends in Africa and the Third World more generally. So as a result, the former colonial powers suddenly faced unexpected competition from their own allies and friends. And this gave African leaders additional agency, which was both strengthened and constrained by local and regional factors. Now, in the case of Nigeria, domestic opposition and accusations by such rivaling African states like Ghana pushed the government to reduce its reliance on Britain in military terms and seek this very military assistance that it did not want to have any more from Britain, from Canada, India, and especially West Germany, notably for the establishment of its air force. Now, in the case of Cote d'Ivoire, the domestic and regional push for alternative providers of military assistance was much more constrained. Israel's involvement in the Ivorian security sector was largely pushed by the Ivorian defense minister, which then later temporarily fell out of favor with Oufrebouani and Oufrebouani's fear of foreign-sponsored subversion, notably by Ghana, which made him increasingly rely on French assistance and protection. Nevertheless, despite this limited push for external support other than uh, French, Israel managed to tem temporarily make important inroads into the Ivorian security sector through its assistance to the Ivorian civic service. In both Nigeria and Cote d'Ivoire, African agency manifests itself in dealings and negotiations with the former colonial powers. And this illustrated also the room for maneuver the Nigerian and Ivorian elites were given by, or could take from Britain and France respectively. And I think there again, it's these cases of Israeli, West German and We'll come to that later, American involvement, which is key because whereas Britain responded to this involvement from West Germany uh, with its Cold War mentality and grudgingly came to expect, except being uh, replaced by another Western and in this case NATO power, France, France's reaction was completely different. With its neo-colonial mentality, it was very clear that it did not tolerate being pushed out in any way, even if it was just in a relatively minor area. And this was made very clear to Fabouani, who wanted to rely on the French for his security. So in so doing, and in terms of the kind of architecture, African security architecture and lasting influence of these 
negotiations and the making of the post-colonial relationship, Oufouet-Boigny and France established a Franco-war and security relationship and architecture that lasts to some extent to today and that also was repeated in a number of former French colonies and that has been kept uh, largely alive. Thank you. Speaking of the Franco-American rivalry on a global scale, did De Gaulle have a problem with the United States when the latter stepped in after France's retreat in Southeast Asia at the same time frame? How did West African leaders take advantage of the Franco-American rivalry during the early Cold War? I think this is a very interesting question. I mean, in terms of Southeast Asia, I'm not a Southeast Asia expert, I think my general understanding is that de Gaulle, when he returned to power in 1958, he had largely made his peace with the loss of Indochina. And especially since uh, the French colonies in Southeast Asia, they had not been lost under him. Now, this being said, he believed that the Americans were doing a rather poor job in Vietnam. And uh, as a result also, he really saw them as poorly suited to deal with France's former colonial possessions anywhere around the globe. And more generally, in the way the Americans approach what was at the time considered the third world, and uh, i.e. the global south. Now, he could be uh, very vociferously critical of the American war in Vietnam, but it was very different from his concerns when it came about United States involvement in Africa. And of course, this was a sort of a, a concern and also an irritation that had been heightened because of the American position, especially under Kennedy during the Algeria war. And there, when the United States, of course, criticized uh, the French. Now, de Gaulle and especially his Monsieur Lafrique, Jacques Focard, they were absolutely convinced that the F Americans in Africa, they were out there to take away their sphere of influence from them. Now, it would not be an exaggeration to actually state that de Gaulle and his right-hand man, they were absolutely paranoid when it came to the Americans in Africa. Now, because the Americans, they were happy to provide some assistance to Cote d'Ivoire and other former French colonies. But again, this was at the time of increasing involvement in Vietnam and many, many other commitments around the world, which they considered, the Americans considered to be much more important from a strategic perspective than Africa, especially Sub-Saharan Africa. So, Actually, and this is something that transpired clearly by studying American documents, the Americans wanted the former colonial powers to remain responsible for their former colonies. And it was only when the former colonial power was pushed out and potentially ran the risk of being replaced by an Eastern power uh, that they were willing to step in. And this only happened to some extent in Nigeria. This was not really the case in Cote d'Ivoire. They were happy to help to some extent, but they would not stand unnecessarily on the French toes. Now, even though 
And this uh, clearly shows, even though these concerns by de Gaulle about the Americans were not real, Uffe Boigny very successfully and skillfully used them to get what he wanted from France. And this was particularly the case, firstly, during uh, the negotiations uh, post-independence for the cooperation agreements, when actually Uffe Boigny succeeded to obtain perfectly tailored uh, defense and military assistance agreements from the French for himself and uh, the other uh, Entente countries with which he was allied. And that was only so because the French really feared that the Americans would come and take Cote d'Ivoire from them. Now, a second instance where it was hugely helpful to him to actually have the specter of the United States in negotiations with France, when the French, in line with their military defense reforms, wanted to withdraw their military base from Cote d'Ivoire, that actually in the mid-1960s, he succeeded to convince the French to stay by actually playing on this threat of uh, potential American encroachments in their sphere of influence. Of course, this was only part of the equation. What eventually helped to make him make the French stay was also, of course, the wave of coups that shook Africa in the mid-1960s. However, it was really uh, uh, something he could play on to get what he wanted from the French, because ultimately he did not trust the Americans himself, but he could use them in order to get what he wanted from France. Marco, what lessons should each of the players involved in the construction of post-colonial relations in West Africa learn? Do the experiences offer a parallel lesson in the age of the PRC rise and new strategic situations? Will Afro-Asian solidarity and the common Eurafrican community remain just a dream? Of course, a difficult question, while also being tempting, um, it is, of course, to uh, apply lessons from the past to the present. <laughs> what can be learned is that, firstly, there are always multi-layered factors and contingency to be taken into account. And it was not just about the Cold War decolonization, but also about national visions, national security interests, domestic politics, and regional rivalry. I think the problem is often that African countries are too much seen in a relationship of dependency that uh, Western or other analysts sometimes tend to forget that they pursue national interests like any other power in the world. Notably, the rivalry that opposed Nigeria and Cote d'Ivoire to Ghana was, of course, somewhat influenced by the Cold War and decolonization, but it was ultimately of a sub-regional nature and it was driven by national interests. That was the basis of this rivalry or these rivalries. So it is important to see beyond such grand narratives as the Cold War and decolonization and therefore dig deeper to see how 
post-colonial relations were affected by local, sub-regional, and regional factors. So it's the complexity that has always to be taken into account. And I think this is something what distinguishes historians from other disciplines who deal with similar issues is that history allows to reflect such complexity in detail. In some ways, of course, this also provides insights for those external powers that are currently involved in Africa. I mean, analysts have spoken uh, since for more than a decade now of the so-called new scramble for Africa, of course, which sees um, you know, China heavily involved in African affairs and bankrolling big projects without asking any questions about human rights, as well as often Western uh, providers of development aid do. And of course, the United States, after having largely withdrawn from Africa after the Cold War, and especially after Somalia uh, in the early 1990s, uh, has never really made a full return to Africa. Uh, you can see that, of course, with the with problems uh, it has to find a place for AFRICOM. And so it largely left China, uh, the PRC, relatively unchallenged in, uh, in Africa. But of course, despite sort of this lack of being really challenged, and perhaps Biden is now trying to do so, uh, is that uh, there are, of course, increasing local, sub-regional and regional resistances against uh, China and uh, concerns about Beijing's increasingly and potentially all too mighty role. Of course, we should not forget the French are still quite influential in Africa. And uh, the concerns that uh, Africans might have about China, um, they can be become, of course, more pronounced if China fails actually to more thoroughly engage with African factors and concerns, actually starts looking more at the local and sub-regional level. And also, of course, if it continues to exploit the continent's vast natural resources in return for relatively short-lived uh, infrastructure, or, or it continues to empty uh, the sea of fish, and you know that African fishermen hardly can catch anything anymore. So I would say, when it comes to China, of course, today it's very difficult to speak of anything like Afro-Asian solidarity. And I think this is interesting, actually, because if we look at the uh, non-aligned movement, uh, Afro-Asian solidarity movement, uh, well, it's something where China actually, or the PRC, never shown, was never shining, because already in an early stage, uh, China tried to hijack the Afro-Asian solidarity movement and radicalize it, and then ultimately it never really worked out. Uh, but there was nevertheless a certain degree of Afro-Asian solidarity uh, during early years of independence. Uh, we can see it in the book when India, for instance, supported the development of the Nigerian armed forces. But um, again, it was largely disrupted and uh, it is questionable whether there's going to be something such as an Afro-Asian solidarity movement uh, functioning anytime soon. Now, as for your African community, well, I think it will definitely remain a dream, at least uh, the way it was imagined by uh, colonial and often racist thinkers of the interwar period and the immediate post-war period. Nevertheless, 
I think we can see it in terms of migration uh, or other, uh, you know, natural resources and so on. And the sheer proximity is that the destinies of Africa and Europe, they are closely connected. And of course, more cooperation is needed. Thank you so much, Marco, for sharing your perspective. We've taken up a lot of your time. I'd like to ask you one final question. What are you working on these days? Well, I'm working on a couple of projects, but I think the main one I'm working on currently is actually uh, to look at the West's and uh, Western-oriented African countries' involvement in the Nigerian civil war, because what we know about the Nigerian civil war is quite interesting. I mean, in addition to all the humanitarian catastrophe it was, what is interesting is really, if you look at it, you see Western countries on opposing sides. So you have Britain together with the Soviet Union, not in a coordinated way, but both supporting federal Nigeria. And you have France together with South Africa, Cote d'Ivoire, Gambon, Rhodesia, and so on, Portugal, of course, supporting the secessionist Biafra. So in this project, I want to look into what I consider a dirty war and how they actually supported the different warring factions and how the different warring factions mobilized this support. And I want to look at these uh, rather conflicting, um, you know, narratives of conflicting explanations that have been put forward why there was this particular constellation during the Nigerian civil war. And in so doing, I really want to question, uh, you know, different narratives and how Cold War imperatives could be put into question by colonial and imperial agendas, white supremacist rearguard action, and so on and so forth. So in so doing, I also want to show that you had African countries and leaders who actually acted as providers of military assistance, and also show that West Africa's Cold War was more multipolar than hitherto assumed. And I think this is something that can be helpful in informing uh, not only history, but also the social sciences, notably international relations. Great, Marco. Thank you so much. I look forward to reading your new work. Have a good day. Thank you very much.